You're listening to audio from the Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com. I hope that today, that as we start this series in the Gospel of Mark, and I would invite you to go ahead and take your Bibles. You can make your way there. We're going to be looking at part of chapter 1 today. But I want to encourage you in this. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what your religious background. It doesn't matter your political affiliation. It doesn't matter your failure or your questions. Be you atheist, agnostic, skeptic, backslidden, faithful follower, just confused, or somewhere in the gaps, I want you to know that Jesus Christ sees you and he loves you. Today, as we look at his word, I hope that you will not only believe that in your mind, but I pray that today, if you have not done so, that you will reorient your life around Jesus Christ and see that his gospel does rescue us from sin. We're starting a new series, series in Mark. In this first part, we're calling the Servant King. Now, when it comes to the gospel of Mark, I I want you to know Mark is the action film of the gospels. If you've got John, who's the philosopher, you've got Matthew, who's the historian, you've got Luke, who is the, the careful chronicler, you've got Mark, and he is like an old 80s action movie. It's one thing to the next. It's rapid fire, a succession of events. You're barely getting your mind around one thing, and you wish he'd given you a few more details, and then you're just losing your breath because you're trying to keep up with a narrative that just keeps going. This gospel of Mark, as we read it, though, is sometimes one of those things that we fail to take and savor. Sometimes when we come to the Word, we read it, because I don't know if you're like me, you know, January, we start a new reading plan. If you're like me, some of you may be like, well, I might be a day or two or a week or three behind. Be at peace, all is well, Jesus is king, and there's grace for that. I want you to know when it comes to reading the word, can I commend this to you? It's not so much about quantity, it's about quality. I hope that as you go to the word, it's okay. Read slow. Savor every word. Enjoy every connector, every comma, every sentence, every bit in there. Taste and see that the Lord is good in his word. As we begin this journey through the gospel of Mark, he frames it up in basically two acts. He takes chapters 1 through 8. He's showing us that Jesus is powerful. And then he takes us in the second act, 9 through 16, and he shows us that he really is a servant king. Unexpected in every way. As you read the Gospels, when you get to chapter 10 and verse 45, you find out that what he wants people to know is, I I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. For a lot of people, we get the gospel upside down and backwards too. We think that somehow we have to save ourselves or figure out something. But I want you to know that Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, has finished salvation's work. And he invites all to come, no matter where you are, no matter what you've been through. So today, I I want us to look through the first 13 verses And I want you to see that Jesus is not just some historical figure that we can kind of find in a history book or or just some sort of, you know, idea or symbol, but he is a living person who invites us to reorient our lives around his gospel. And Mark will tell us it's always immediate 
It always requires a decision quickly. But we need to start where all stories start, with the beginning. So if you would, I know you just sat down. Would you stand with me? We might honor the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. The Bible says this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. I know you're getting hungry now. (laughs) He preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. You see how quick? He won't even let us rest. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately we saw the heavens being torn open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. May God bless the reading of his word, receive it as his living and active word to you this day. You may be seated. So we're introduced in the Gospel of Mark, and and I want you to know, for us, we sometimes have a hard time getting our minds around significant details that are included in little phrases or words. You see, as you think about this time in history, perhaps somewhere in a darkened catacomb, someone says, hey, I have a new letter for us to read. It's the gospel according to Mark. And they begin to read. And so sometimes when we read verse 1, we read the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and we just march right past. But I want you to know we can't miss something that's happening right here. The beginning, this Greek word, R-K, not just first in chronological order, but also in greatness, immensity, importance. The beginning for all the Jews who were in the room and had been trained in the synagogues and the Torah and God's word. When they hear the beginning, their minds flash to Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know that John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And to the Gentile hearers who were certainly surrounding at this time, it was the answer to that question, where did all this come from? This is laden with references to creation. But as he talks about creation, he tells us that this is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's important for us to remember that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Some of you may be confused by this, but I want you to know Christ is not his last name. It's a title. 
It's this anointed royal figure, this Messiah of God, this promise that has been unfolding throughout history and Scripture. And Mark then doubles down and he says he's not just Jesus who is the Christ, but he's also the Son of God. And then he goes on to say, and I want you to know that all the prophets, all of these things have been explaining him for so long. Sometimes when we read our Bibles, we get into the Older Testament, and it gets a little weird sometimes. We're not sure, why is this story here? Why these genealogies? What is, what is the deal with the activity that we're reading about right here? But I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the lens through which all of it comes into focus. When it comes to reading our Bibles, when it comes to understanding the Christ, this Son of God, I want you to know that this was a plan before the beginning of time. It was not an accident. This is not happenstance. God has always had a plan. And so as we read about this, we are reminded that there is a king. But it's not what we would think of a king. Not a king for palaces, not a king that people are going to automatically recognize authority, but a king nonetheless, but a, a servant king. When you think about galaxies being put into place, what was it like for the one who spoke into existence the stars and calls the heavenly host by name? What is it like for this servant king now to humble himself and become like the creature? Take part in the brokenness of this world and our failures. Be around our suffering. Experience the things that we experience. Mark wants people to know this is not like a brand new thing. Christianity is not something that just happened right now. That this has been a plan of God before the beginning. This is God keeping his promises. So he moves to Isaiah's quote. And he begins to talk about this one who would come, this one who would prepare the way of the Lord and call people to repentance and to make these paths straight. This was a thing that Israel would hold fast to. They knew at the end of Malachi that there had been this promise that Elijah was going to be back. The Messiah would come, and there in Roman-occupied territory... There was a longing to be free. And they were looking. But they missed it. But onto the scene, because God keeps his promises, burst this furious figure. He's like a cross between Fred Flintstone and Duck Dynasty. Camel hair, leather belt, eating locusts and wild honey. I picture him just spitting every time he preaches with like a locust leg poking out of his beard, smelling a little strange. He's out in the wilderness around the Jordan. And the crazy thing is people are going out there to him. And sometimes when we read this, we get caught up in his diet or his appearance, and we fail to miss the subtle message that is there. When you hear wilderness, the people of God know what the wilderness symbolizes. They have been trapped, enslaved in Egypt. And God had delivered them. They would order their calendar. They would remind their children and, and hold fast to this idea. And they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. 
demonstrating over and over their rebellion, moaning, groaning, and disobedience. Kind of like when you wake your kids up before they get to school, right? He's in the wilderness. It's a picture. There is this thing that's going on, and he's out there, and he's saying something that to us, when we talk about it, seems like, okay, he's baptizing people. Most of us are familiar with the concept of baptism. Most of us have experienced baptism in some way. And so they're like, of course, John the Baptist, he's baptizing. But I want you to know that for the Jewish people, this is outrageous and unprecedented. Jewish people saw themselves as God's people by birthright, by nationality. They were the children of Abraham. They didn't need to be baptized. They didn't need some sort of initiation that Gentiles had to go through when they wanted to convert and needed to go through a purification washing to show that they wanted to enter into participating in the life of Judaism and practicing the things of the law. You didn't need to be baptized. You weren't supposed to be baptized. And not only that, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But people had it all twisted. They thought, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian by birthright. Or I'm, I belong to God because of my nationality. Or I, I'm in just by nature of what I've experienced in my life. But I, I want you to know that we still get it backwards today. Some of you will be stunned to find out that God is not an American. Some of you are going to be shocked to find out that God is not a Democrat or a Republican. He's a king and he doesn't need your vote. And sometimes we get a little bit twisted and we start to roll in our identity thinking ourselves to be in God's family because, you know, God bless America, and I try to be a nice person, and I do religious things. Can I tell you? Let from the past the voice of a furious personality raging toward religious leaders, calling them, you brood of vipers, who told you to run from the coming wrath? Can you imagine the scene? There at the Jordan, thousands coming, lining the banks, listening to his sermon. And his sermon was not politically correct. It was not easy on the ears or the conscience. He was not trying to win friends and influence people or tell people that belonging to God and and following Jesus was just going to be another extracurricular activity that we add into our already overpacked schedules that we just squeeze in when convenient. He's saying, you've got to reorient your entire life around Jesus Christ. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. And when it comes to this idea of repentance, I want you to know repentance is not just, I feel bad about the mistakes that I've made. Repentance is not just, oh, I'm going to do better now and I'm going to fix that. I want you to know that when it comes to repentance, it is a Holy Spirit-fueled change of direction and desire because you can see the authority, the glory, the beauty of Jesus. You've never seen anything like it. You're willing to die and turn away from anything that you have to to be in union with him. 
Imagine thousands lining the banks. Listen to what the text says. It says that he's laying this out there, and they're confessing their sins. Can you imagine them saying these things out loud? They're confessing their sins and then going into the water and being baptized. Some estimates say that there was more than 300,000 people that may have been baptized. Regardless, there he is, God fulfilling his promises, sending the one who was going to prepare the way. Him calling people to repentance. But he says, I, I want you to understand, I I'm baptizing you with water, but I need for you to know that there's someone coming, he's greater, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we wonder what this is like. What does it mean to be baptized with fire and the Holy Spirit? The point is this, external washing will not change the condition of the soul. Church membership does not mean that you're saved. Adherence to liturgy, practices, and religious things does not mean that you are in Christ. And John challenges even the most pious of the Jewish people and says, you're just a bunch of empty, whitewashed tombs. You're a bunch of snakes. You're doing all sorts of things, but inside, you're still dead, filled with evil, wickedness, with no desire to love God more than yourself and show it by the way that you live. But Mark doesn't even give us a chance to get our arms around that. And he just says, and then all of a sudden from Nazareth, here comes Jesus. As soon as we're trying to get these things in here, here we're switching directions. Here comes Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Nazareth of Galilee is not a popular place. It's not a, a vacation destination. It's not an urban center. It's not a technology hub. It, it, it's way out. And the people are mostly poor, agrarian. This is not the crowd that you would want to be in. These are not the socialites, the movers and shakers. These are not the ones shaping politics and economies. These are the common, everyday, hardworking, sun up to sundown, people of God in the area of Galilee, of Judea. And Jesus comes to John the Baptist. And he says something that really is astounding. He says, I, I, I've come for baptism. In the other gospel accounts, you'll read that John really gets messed up by this. He's like, no, no, no. I, I mean, who am I to baptize you? This is, behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. This, I, I'm not here to baptize you. And if he's calling people to be baptized for repentance and the forgiveness of sins, if Jesus never sinned, why in the world is he being baptized? It's important for us to understand. In something so remarkable that only God could conceive of it and only God could bring it about, Jesus is truly God, but he is also truly man. And he identifies with us in every single way. He shows us how important it is to obey the Father. He wants to identify with us. And so he's baptized. And in something so remarkable that I think sometimes we fail to even appreciate its ramifications for our salvation and we fail to appreciate what we have the privilege of observing, Mark just describes, he says, the heavens are torn open. You hear the Old Testament scriptures about, I wish you would rend the heavens and come down. 
The heavens rip open, and then descending like a dove, the Holy Spirit, a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son. This is my son. I love him. I'm so proud of him. Now, for us, we, we read these things. It's hard for the mind to get around. Now, I, I want you to know that it is difficult. How, how is one to explain or fully understand? How can the God who is one in essence or being, but also has three persons or subsistences? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal. How are we to get our minds around that? I don't know that we ever will, but I can tell you by the testimony of Scripture, we can see it clearly. There was never a time when the Father wasn't the Father, when the Son wasn't the Son, or the Spirit wasn't the Spirit. The Father decreed, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. In a glorious community there in heaven, mutual love, respect, joy, there's harmony, all pointing to one another. As C.S. Lewis would say, in a grand dance, not selfishly trying to get their way, but always trying to serve and point to the other. A glorious thing. And as he comes up, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. Now for us, thinking about paintings of the Holy Spirit and putting it in the context of a picture of a dove, you know, we're like, oh, okay, that's not uncommon to us. But that would have been very strange to a Jew. I grew up in mostly small churches, and some of the churches I grew up in, you know, we had the baptistry like in the very back, and they had the, the poorly painted mural on the back, you know, where it was like, I'm not sure what that is there, and I think that's a dove right there. And so you're like, oh, yeah, we get it. Okay, it's, it's the Holy Spirit as a dove. What, what's that like, you know? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you're just trying to get your mind around it. But Scripture says, like, there's this simile, it's a, it's a comparison. And so the, the heavens are ripped open, and, and the Father is talking about His Son that He loves, and he's, he's pleased in Him, and the Spirit is descending like a dove. And I want you to know that in what's called the Targums, it's an Aramaic translation of Hebrew Scriptures, the rabbis would translate, it's the only place in all those Old Testament Scriptures, they would translate Genesis in this way. And the earth was without form and empty, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And where we would normally read, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep, in their translation they would say, and the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove. And God spoke, let there be light. What an incredible thing. At the baptism, I, I, I can't help but was sensory overload. How is the mind to conceive of what the eyes are seeing, the ears are hearing? How in this limited, finite existence am I to appreciate this unbelievably immense and glorious holy God who has no rival and no equal and there's no one like him that would condescend taking to himself a body, truly man, truly God, and the Father declaring his love this is my son. I love him. I'm so proud of him. As the Spirit descends, giving us the model for how we are to do ministry and where our power for living comes from. Oh, dear ones, do not treat God the Spirit as if he is not God. In this unbelievable scene descending, this is my son. So pleased with him. 
well as you think back to the beginning. You have that uh, creation event, chapters 1 and 2. And then what happens in chapter 3? Immediately, we are met with the enemy showing up to engage our first parents there in Eden. And in the same way, we see the mirror image as Christ, as Mark doesn't even let us drink in the fact that the Father speaking, the Spirit descending, the Son embodied coming out of the water. We don't even have time to catch our breath until we find out immediately he's sent to the wilderness. And suddenly, the servant king is to be a warrior king thrust out into the wilderness, you see the juxtaposition and the parallels, but the differences between when our first parents, Adam and Eve, faced the enemy and when Jesus faced the enemy. Think about it, Adam and Eve, the lush garden of Eden, surrounded with beauty, given all the produce of the land, save the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And they're there. They, they have, they're not alone. They have each other because it was not good for man to be alone. Their bellies are filled with the goodness. They have someone with them. They're in this place of beauty, this place of plenty. But not our king. Our king sent out into utter desolation, barrenness, a body weakened. By no food. See, Jesus experienced everything that we do, but he was without sin. Imagine there in the wilderness. Uh, Mark throws in this idea of wild animals, but there in a cosmic conflict, the enemy comes alongside our king and he does the same thing that he did to our first parents. His lies, deceptive, are always the same. You can't really trust God. You can't really just fully give yourself to him. He's trying to keep you from some things that would really provide satisfaction and enjoyment. He does not love you like he says. He's holding that back because he knows he doesn't want you to have some good things. It's the same lie that we believe today. Oh, listen, society, you know, we're, we're more modern. Uh, relationships work differently. The way we're, we don't need these archaic rules anymore. We've got to, you know, bring the Bible up with the times. We've got to think about these things. But I want you to know, obedience always pleases the Father. And in this moment, there in this place, the enemy comes to our king. Hungry. Alone. And he does the same thing. In essence, what he says is, I know about your power. I, 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 know, I know who you are. But this is no way to treat the Son of God. You deserve better than this. You, you, you deserve better than being out in the middle of nowhere and hungry. And I know that you're the Son of God. I know you have power. So turn these stones into bread. Because that's really the way things are supposed to be. And our king teaches us a valuable lesson. It's better to suffer in obedience than it is to enjoy a short season of pleasure that ends in death. Oh, we have the same kind of 
lies our enemy tells us today. Listen, I know, but that, that was then, and this is now, and you know, you, you just, God doesn't want you in this relationship because he's trying to keep this from you, or he doesn't want you to participate in this thing because he's not really that good, and he doesn't love you, and he's not telling you the whole truth. You deserve better than this. Friends, no one loves you like Jesus. And there is no one who wants to see you have life abundant, filled with joy and peace, patience and love. When your enemy comes to tell you those lies, you must remember the truth. And our king also shows us where to find that. It will be found in sacred scripture. Not popular opinion. Not the latest news cycle. If you want to know the truth, as we did in our abide study, you're truly my disciples. If you abide in my word and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you want to truly be free, if you want to know what the truth is, it will be found in sacred scripture. Do not lose heart in your new reading plan. If you decided I'm going one year through the Bible and you're already behind, no worries. I'd be happy for you to take five years to get through it. Read slow. Enjoy your king. The warrior king. He's also different from our first parents. He's victorious. Finally, the enemy leaves. And once again, an unseen realm opens up where wild animals surround King Jesus, but they don't bite him because he made them. Where angels that he commands and he created come and minister to him. This battle didn't end here. It's a cosmic battle that had been going on since the very beginning and he is the promised child, the offspring of a woman through whom victory would come. He is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And in his Gospels, there is good news. Because for so many people, you feel trapped in darkness, suffering. You're just looking for a little bit of light, looking for a way forward, trying to figure out what do I do. Let me give you a few things. One, don't confuse knowing about Jesus with knowing Jesus. The devil knew about Jesus. The devil knew about the scripture and quoted it to him. But do not mistake knowing about Jesus for being the same thing as knowing Jesus. Say, okay, John, what, 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 what does that really mean for me? What, am I, what does that practically mean? It means that you're supposed to center everything, your entire life around him, to abandon all things believing that Jesus Christ will cover every sin, every iniquity, that he will not hold it against you, that he will give you his righteousness. He will exchange all that you are for all that he is. And in an unbelievable transaction, we will become the righteousness of God so that when your father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of the son. And he always says, you're my child. I love you. I'm proud of you. Because he sees Jesus in us. Jesus is inviting you to enjoy what he has enjoyed for all of eternity. 
He invites you into familyship. He invites you to be a part of his family, father, son, also our father, our brother. And every time that you struggle, and every time your enemy tries to tell you who you are, when you've failed again and again, and you keep your mouth shut because you feel the weight of your sin. We have a mediator and an advocate who walks before our Father and he still bears the scars. And he said, that's not true. That's not who they are. They're our family. They're your child. And the Father says, I sure do love them. I sure am proud of what they're becoming. Dear ones, there is hope in failure. There is grace for all those who are far from God. And that's why Mark says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that cosmic battle will go all the way to the end of his earthly ministry. And when it looks like he has lost in a tomb, it will give way to the glorious reality that he has conquered every enemy, including death. And he has secured your hope so that you will always be his child and there is nothing that can change it. And his love for you will never, ever, ever fail. But Mark's gospel reminds us it demands a response. If you're here today and you say, John, I don't know, I've tried being religious, I've done all these things. I implore you on behalf of the living God, renounce everything that would raise itself up against Jesus. Just look at how beautiful he is, how kind he is. Look at what he has done for you. And come to him, you will find that he loves you like nobody else. In him, you will find life. You will experience true peace and joy. In him, you'll find what you've been looking for. And if you are in Christ, C.J. Mahaney reminds us, reminding ourselves of the gospel is the most important daily habit we can establish. I want you to know we need the gospel every day, not just that one day that I got baptized or filled out the card or prayed the prayer or whatever it was. I need Jesus to save me every single day because I struggle every single day. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day. And when your enemy comes to tell you what you're not, and when he comes to tell you who he says you are, do what Martin Luther did when he was asked about temptation. He said, when the devil comes and knocks at the door of my heart, I answer. And I tell him, Martin Luther lives here no longer. Jesus has taken up residence You'll have to speak with him. He will keep you. He will see you safely home. So there's going to be people at tables on either side. If you need Jesus, take the next step in your journey of faith. Go talk to somebody. Say, I don't know what this being a Christian thing. I don't know how to follow God. I don't even know about this gospel stuff. Can you tell me how to follow Jesus? Do that. I promise you will not be disappointed. You may just need somebody to pray with you. You may just want to talk to somebody. I, I don't know what it is, but I can tell you, God is always pleased with obedience. You'll never be disappointed in the way that he loves you. 
You're listening to audio from The Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com.